0: Welcome to the weekly appellate report for March 3rd, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. Happy to welcome you to another edition of our program. It's your source each Friday for commentary and insights from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on important developments in appellate law. This week, our show regards a California Supreme Court ruling that issued Monday in the case of Central Coast Forest Association vs. Fish and Game Commission, which clarifies certain procedural elements— California's Endangered Species Act. The decision culminates more than a decade of litigation over petitioners' challenge to the inclusion of a certain population of salmon within the protections of that state statute. Notably, the court's ruling does not reach the merits of the petitioner's challenge. It merely holds that the parties involved in the case are indeed able to bring the challenge and in the manner they brought it. Nonetheless, though the ruling is just procedural, our guest Tony Francois, a senior attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, will visit to discuss its very salient impacts. Mr. Francois authored an amicus brief in support of the petitioners in which he claimed that the intermediate court's ruling in this matter threw state administrative law in this context into disarray. In that intermediate court decision, a divided panel held that, specifically because of the type of judicial review allowed for under the pertinent California Endangered Species Act provision, which is administrative mandamus, the original decision to list the salmon population within the act's protections Should be regarded as a quasi judicial one. But such a designation, Francois explains, gives the original decision a somewhat preclusive effect, immunizing it from certain challenges, like the one brought here, and even Francois explains from review and revision by the very administrative agency, here the Fish and Game Commission, that made the decision in the first place. In his brief, Mr. Francois explained why such an interpretation is legally incorrect and in policy terms problematic, as it could raise due process concerns and unpredictably impact other similar areas of California law where administrative mandamus is the form of judicial review prescribed. In a unanimous decision, authored by Justice Chen, the state high court agreed. Before I get to my conversation with Mr. Francois, I should mention one other California Supreme Court ruling rendered this week, one that came down just yesterday in the matter of City of San Jose versus Superior Court. There, in what seems to be an unceasingly topical theme, the High Court ruled on an issue involving public officials using private email accounts to conduct government business and whether citizens can reach such correspondence by way of the California Public Records Act. An intermediate appellate panel concerned with the logistic and privacy issues that might arise when the CPRA is deemed to reach public officials' private accounts held the statute only entitles citizens to request documents and correspondence on officials' public accounts. But the Supreme Court disagreed, Writing for a unanimous court, Justice Carol Corrigan noted that, quote, the whole purpose of the CPRA is to ensure transparency in governmental activities. If public officials could evade the law simply by clicking into a different email account or communicating through a personal device, sensitive information could routinely evade public scrutiny, end quote. The court remanded the matter for further proceedings, but In the meanwhile, if you have any public records requests to file, know the CPRA sanctions you'll reach to all communications of public concern, whether or not they're housed within private accounts. One more note before we get to my guest, please don't forget that CLE credit is available to listeners of the podcast. Find a short true-false test through the link on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Complete that and one hour of credit can be yours. Without any further ado then, let's hear from my guest, Tony Francois, Senior Counsel the Pacific Legal Foundation. Happy to welcome to the program now Mr. Tony Francois, Senior Attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation and their national headquarters in Sacramento. Mr. Francois, welcome to the podcast.
1: How are you doing today?
0: Well, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, We're talking about a case rendered on Monday from the California Supreme Court in the context of an environmental state statute, the California Endangered Species Act. It was one decided on procedural grounds that didn't reach the merits of the case, but nonetheless, it's still uh, an important ruling for administrative law generally. Um, and we'll, we'll discuss there are many reasons why that's so, but we'll drill down first into some of these details about the, the statute and the particular case decided this week. Um, so could you describe to me first a, a little bit more about the statute at issue, the California Endangered Species Act, and the original action that was taken by the, the Fish and Game Commission pursuant to that statute that was subsequently challenged by the original plaintiffs here?
1: Sure. The the California Endangered Species Act is a fairly close analog of the Federal Endangered Species Act. It's at the California Fish and Game Code sections 2050 and following. And one of the features in the California Endangered Species Act that's very frequently used is uh, the right of any interested person to petition the California Fish and Game Commission to list or delist species to add it or remove it from the state's list of endangered and threatened species and the commission is the state agency with responsibility for deciding whether um, any individual species is threatened or endangered it has its own um, authority to act to to add or remove a species but the uh, petition process which is at the Fish and Game Code Section 2071 allows anybody uh, to ask the commission to add or remove a species.
0: Yeah, and then, so the case here seems to regard the proper way in which a party can do that. Um, the, the population, I understand, that was listed by the the Fishing Game Commission was a, a population of co-host salmon south of San Francisco Bay. Um, they're deemed endangered by the commission in 1995. And then the, the plaintiffs here they seek to have that population delisted in 2003. Why did they seek that delisting, and what was the commission's response?
1: So the the petition that um, the plaintiffs in this case, uh, which are uh, Central Coast Forest Association and Big Creek Lumber, uh, they based their request or their petition to the, to the Fish and Game Commission to, to remove coho salmon south of San Francisco from the endangered species list, the state's endangered species list, because they uh, reported having found uh, a variety of types of information showing that, uh, in their view, coho salmon were not native to the coastal streams south of San Francisco Bay, that they had originally been introduced through hatcheries as a sport fish and that, uh, you know, their analysis argued that there had never been sustainable, uh, naturally spawning populations of, of coho salmon south of San Francisco Bay, and that the um, environmental conditions, the natural environmental conditions uh, in that zone were, were basically not hospitable to uh, a permanently self-sustaining uh, coho salmon fishery. So this was their argument to the, the Fish and Game Commission that the, the Commission should, um, look at this portion of, uh, co-salmons or the co-salmon habitat and decide that because there really was no way in, in the petitioner's view for salmon to become, to, to ever recover there, really, um, that they should not be considered endangered and that the Commission should, should base that decision on a finding that they're not native to that area. So you could plant them there as much as you wanted, but you were never going to get a permanently sustainable uh, native uh, fishery there. So that's the argument they made to the commission.
0: In short, that contention is basically that the the salmon should not have been listed under the the Endangered Species Act to begin with, which as we'll get into more, is importantly different from maybe another type of way to challenge an original listing, which is to say, you know, okay, it was proper to list that species at some point, but now because of intervening acts or perhaps because of the protections that it was given based on the statute, uh, it's no longer threatened. And so now it can be delisted safely. Uh, and there is some, you know, the, the case seems to turn to some extent uh, at both the intermediate and high court level on that distinction. Is that correct? Uh,
1: that, yeah, that that's absolutely correct. And, and. What uh, what the petitioners were arguing is that when the the Fish and Game Commission originally uh, added this segment of uh, Coho salmon to the, endang- the state's endangered species list, that was basically both a factual and a legal error. Um, part of their legal argument is that the State Endangered Species Act authorizes the state to uh, protect as endangered native species. And their argument was that in this area, coho salmon are not native and therefore not eligible for listing under the the state ESA. And as you point out, that's completely different from bringing information that says, here's a species that you listed 15 years ago. Here's the evidence that they have recovered to the point where uh, they no longer need protection. There's uh, increased numbers there's adequate management you know other things like that
0: um, now I understand the Commission denied that petition and then the parties sought relief in superior court which which granted them relief I think at that point the superior court required the Commission to reconsider the petition is that what happened then and then i I think they um, subsequently still denied it is that right
1: uh, correct so uh, to put the the commission's action in a little more context, it helps to uh, bear in mind that the petition process that occurs before the Fish and Game Commission uh, has two steps. So there's an initial, what you could call a screening step. After the the petition is submitted, there's a, a short period of time in which the Department of Fish and Wildlife, which is a different state agency, but provides staff support to the Fishing and Game Commission. Um, experts of the Department of Fish and Wildlife will review the petition, um, do basically like an initial screen on it, and the commission will then decide whether or not to go forward with the petition, you know, do, go forward to make a decision on the petition. And that step um, concludes when the commission decides that the the petition may be warranted or is not warranted. And so this may be warranted finding, which is the result of the first step in the petition process, leads then to a lengthier period of more detailed analysis of the data and the petition. And uh, that will ultimately conclude in a decision whether or not to list or delist the species. What the commission did... um, with this petition was uh, declined it, uh, at, the, at this initial screening step. And when the, when the petitioners first went to Superior Court, the Superior Court ruled that there was inadequate evidence to support the commission's finding that uh, there was, uh, it's kind of one of these weird <laughs> things in <laughs> judicial and appellate review. It's a substantial evidence standard What the commission found was that there was not adequate information in the petition to show that delisting would be warranted. And the court then determined that there was not substantial evidence to support the commission's (laughs) conclusion that there wasn't sufficient information in the petition. So if you work your way through all the double negatives, basically the the Superior Court's original um, action in the case was to tell the commission you know, you, if you're going to conclude that there's inadequate information in the petition, you got to document that better. Sure. And so, in that sense, that initial court decision is a pretty basic admin law event. You made a conclusion, agency, but you didn't explain what it's based on, and you need to do that. So the petition went back to the uh, the uh, Fish and Game Commission, and the commission, per the court's order, reconsidered whether or not to move it past the screening stage. And again, the commission uh, rejected the petition at this screening stage. And the second time, they provided more detail in their analysis of the petition. They also addressed some of the legal um, arguments that had been made. On the analysis of the petition, basically what what the commission said the second time around is, there's not evidence in this petition that this species is recovered. And they question the credibility of the evidence that the species was not native to that that portion of the coast. On the legal side, the commission said, we're being asked to delist a portion of this species, so the portion that lives in these streams on you know, south of San Francisco, but we protect species as a whole. So the species itself is either in or out. We can't segment it into one piece that we're protecting and another that we're not. And so they rejected the petition for the second time.
0: Okay. All interesting questions there. And as you said, the the case ruled on, on Monday didn't actually reach those specific ones, um, focused on more procedural basis. So we'll go ahead and get into more of the procedure here. So the Superior Court then um, receives another complaint from the plaintiffs regarding that second petition denial uh, and then again, the, the plaintiffs' uh, petitioners prevail. What was the relief then rendered by the Superior Court?
1: Well, so the Superior Court said in the second go-round that the commission was wrong uh, as a matter of law in saying we can, we have to put the entire species wherever it occurs on the endangered species list. We can't segment it. The court said, actually, under the California Endangered Species Act, the, the Commission does have the legal discretion to designate portions of the species which it's protecting and others that it's not. And that's you know pretty significant um that would be a pretty significant uh, you know read of the California Endangered Species Act if <laughs> one day <laughs> when the merits of this case ever get sorted out, uh, that view is upheld. In fact, one way or another, it'll be important to know what the answer to that is. The uh, the superior court then, rather than remanding for the commission to again consider whether to pass the petition through this screening stage, ordered the commission to accept it and move on to the next um, move on to the next uh, step, the the more in depth portion of the of the petition process. At that stage, um, the commission appealed the superior court decision, and that led to the um, the ruling from the uh, third district court of appeal, that um, you know created some some pretty significant questions about the procedure in, in these types of cases.
0: Sure. Yeah. We'll delve into that now. So the third appellate district does overturn the superior court entirely on procedural grounds. Um, can you tell me a bit? About their specific reasoning as to why the procedure was improper in this particular
1: context. Sure. So the the court of appeal ruled that the petition that Central Coast Central Coast Forest uh, Association had brought was essentially uh, a bid to get the commission to reconsider its original listing decision, and I think that's fair to say. Uh, that that's an accurate description of it. The the information in the petition is new. It's subsequent to the original um, administrative record before the commission. Uh, it presents evidence that's newly available since the original listing decision. But it does ask them to agree that the original listing decision uh, was, was an error, basically, to, and that the, the species should not have been listed in the first case. The Court of Appeal then went on to say that the, on two separate bases, that that could not be done, that uh, on one hand, the California Endangered Species Act doesn't allow a, a petition to delist for any reason other than that the species were covered. In other words, you can't petition to delist to address an error in the original listing decision. So that was... One ground for the court of appeals decision. The other was a very complicated and uh, I I think odd argument or or set of analysis, which says which which relied on the form of judicial review of, of listing decisions. And what the what the court of appeals did was they start with the fact that the. Listing decision is a what's called a quasi-legislative action, so that it's more similar to what the legislature does in setting broad general rules than it is to what courts do in adjudicating individual cases. And so um, the Fish and Game Commission's decision to list a species, or delist it, is quasi-legislative. They go on from there to observe that the normal means of reviewing a, a judicial review of a, of a legislative or quasi-legislative action is through traditional mandamus under Code of Civil Procedure Section 1085. And then they note that the legislature has specified in the California Endangered Species Act that instead of traditional mandamus, Judicial review of a listing decision is only under administrative mandamus under Code of Civil Procedure Section 1094.5. And that's uh, the only way that you would get a 1094.5 review of a quasi-legislative decision is if the legislature specified that. Otherwise, it would be under 1085. Sure. This had that, that distinction. Um, there are a variety of consequences for reviewing a decision under Section 1085 versus Section 1094.5. But the one that matters here is that under Section 1094.5, code of Civil procedure, administrative mandamus, the courts take a very deferential view of the fact-finding done by the agency whose decision is being reviewed. And 1094.5 is typically the, uh, form of review for, uh, quasi adjudicatory decisions of administrative agencies, permit decisions, um, you know, decisions related to, um, you know, building permits, things like that, or enforcement actions, these kinds of things. Under 1094.5, the court takes a very deferential view of the fact finding that's done by the agency. And so the Court of Appeal in this case concluded from the legislature's designation of judicial review of listing decisions under Section 1094.5 that the legislature also intended the fact-finding that goes into a listing decision to have that deferential review and to basically be final in the way that a... Court judgment is final, rather than subject to being revisited in the way the legislature can change a statute any way it wants to, anytime it wants to, or a regulation can be revised anytime the the regulatory agency wants to. So through this very complicated set of analysis, the court of appeal emerges with this uh, opinion that. There's no way you can um, seek to um, change a listing decision other than challenging the original decision in court. You can't bring a petition to change a listing decision um, because the use of review of the original listing decision under 1094.5 means that it, it can't be changed by the agency that all sounds very complicated it reads about as you know complicated and a lot of appellate practitioners looked at this when it came out and they are just you know we're you know scratching our heads thinking wow what does this mean for um other state statutes where the legislature you know normally you'd have review under section 1085 but the legislature has substituted section 1094.5 sure
0: yeah, it sounds like you're not the only one scratching your head. There was a dissent in this inter- intermediate appellate court. Opinion was the focus of that dissent. On that bit of analysis that does sort of that reverse logic, starting at the judicial review availability and going back to then deciding what type of rule making you know, decision that these processes are.
1: Yeah. So uh, uh, Judge Nicholson of the, the Third District uh, dissented in this case, and you know he does a fairly cogent job of, you know, rebutting the argument that because judicial review is under 1094.5, the the agency's action being reviewed in some sense gets transmogrified into a, a, essentially a court judgment, which is immune, which would then be immune from collateral attack. The, the, that's not what's going on here. This is a, a quasi-legislative action. The majority in the case even grants, you know, admits this is a quasi-legislative action. It's normally those can be changed at any time. But because of this use of 1094.5 review, suddenly the agency can't even change it. So the dissent, um, you know, objects to this analysis of the nature of the commission's listing decisions based on the type of judicial review that's applied. And, you um, you know, the after this decision was was issued by the Court of Appeal, uh, the Central Coast Forest Association and the other petitioner uh, asked the state Supreme Court to review the case. And my you know, educated guess, if you will, as to the impetus for the court taking this case is the portion of the Court of Appeals decision that, that talks about the result of using 1094.5 a judicial review in for sort of binding the hands of the agency that made the decision in ever changing that decision again.
0: Okay. Uh, so then you submit an amicus brief in support of petitioners in this action. I'd be curious to know how um, how you came to to be aware of this ruling and, and why you found it so important that you wanted to to get involved.
1: Well a couple of reasons. Um, Pacific Legal Foundation, where I work, uh, we've done a fair amount of work over the years in cases dealing with the California Endangered Species Act. Um, actually, you know, in the process of litigating a couple of uh, uh, California ESA cases right now, and so just because of the subject matter, we'd been monitoring the case, um, you know, below, and then when the Court of Appeal decision came out, the uh, this. Procedural analysis, both in terms of how the state ESA was interpreted, and the parallel analysis of what happens if the legislature specifies review under 1094.5. Um, you know, we thought it was just important to help the Supreme Court to the extent that we could um, unravel this rather complicated, um, I guess I could say mess, <laughs> that uh, that this 1094.5 analysis seemed to make in the Court of Appeals ruling.
0: In your amicus brief, you make sort of two broad points, the first being that that Court of Appeals um, ruling throws administrative law, this portion of it or this area of it into somewhat uh, of, of disarray. And you also mentioned that, or you saw, argue that the CESA should be construed, in the same way as its federal counterpart. To that first point, we've discussed it a bit. How, uh, I guess, just describe to me what, in what way administrative law is thrown into disarray by, by the intermediate appellate court's ruling.
1: Well, the I think the biggest practical uh, question that the appellate court ruling raised is, is, is it correct that in the various places in the you know, California codes, that the legislature says review of this decision is under section 1094.5, that 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 alone means that the agency's underlying decision, the agency can't even revisit. And is there that that's a pretty significant change in the way um, most agencies view uh, their authority to to do rulemaking. Uh, litigants understand you know, what they can and can't challenge and, and for courts to apply, you know, the proper um, interpretation of of that. Um, It it is odd. I mean, clearly the legislature has something in mind in these uh, various occasions where it specifies review of legislative actions under administrative mandamus, which is usually for, you know, adjudications and fact finding. But, it's a much broader statement to say what that means is that regulation that the agency passed is really more like a court judgment that the agency can't even change. So that we saw as a very you know, significant change uh, in state administrative law, and one that we wanted to unpack a little bit more for for the Supreme Court to you know in, in addressing this case. One of the issues that that raises, uh, if it's true, and ultimately the Supreme Court ruled that it's not correct, but if it's true that um, that specifying review under Section 1094.5 converts for practical purposes a rulemaking into an adjudicatory proceeding like a permit or enforcement, one of the consequences of that is that the the various procedural due process protections of the state and federal constitutions attach to adjudicatory proceedings, but not to legislative ones. So when the commission is doing endangered species listing decisions, it does not have the same um, it does not have the same obligations. For example, to provide notice and an opportunity to comment to every landowner that would be affected by the listing it can merely publish more general notice that's required by the california apa that is used for rulemaking it can limit public testimony to the two minutes that are typically afforded to people that uh, appear at rulemaking hearings to comment if this is an adjudicatory proceeding on the other hand They actually have a due process obligation to provide much more information to any interested landowner, any affected landowner. They, that landowner has cross-examination rights before the, before the the regulatory body. It's a very, very different proceeding if in fact it is quasi-adjudicatory. Needless to say, you know, agencies that conduct these rulemaking hearings don't do that kind of procedural due process they're not required to under the Constitution but if the Court of Appeal was correct in this case they would have to or or the regulations couldn't stand so that was one of the major you know concerns we brought to the court's attention the one of the examples we used of you know how this issue extends well beyond the Fish and Game Commission the state and regional water quality control boards Do many um, different types of regulations, Um, water quality policies all the way to rather detailed uh, basin plans that are uh, water quality regulations. And normally, judicial review of those regulations would be under 1085, Section 1085, except that the legislature, again, has specified that review of all those decisions is under section 1094.5. So if the court of appeals is correct in this case, then that rationale would also apply to every water quality regulation in the, you know, issued by by the state agencies that do so. And the effect of that would be that the agencies could not even revise their own water quality regulations. They they'd be stuck with whatever regulation was originally adopted. So you know, we saw a very broad consequence of the the court of appeals, you know, decision in this case, and so those were the Those were the you know the admin law issues that we briefed the Supreme Court.
0: Sure. Yeah. And reading through the filings, it it is something that made me stop and and read through again. That um, the upshot would would be agencies making these decisions would then be foreclosed from revisiting them. It it, it, it did strike me as unusual. And I believe in the briefing stage. Um, even you know, the the commission conceded this point. I mean, the, obviously, there's more to the case than just these procedural elements. Uh, there's the you know, the merits of whether the petition was substantively you know, correct or proper. Um, but procedurally, I think the commission said, "Yeah, you know, we don't agree with the court of appeals on this point either." Is, is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And uh, they they make very short work of that in their opening <laughs> brief in the in the Supreme Court and then move on um to you know the merits of the petition that was filed in this case it's also important to note that uh the parties in the court of appeal had not briefed or argued this issue the court of appeal asked for supplemental briefing on that issue and then based their decision on it so This was an issue that was original to uh, the court of appeal. Um, Impossible to know, you know, why they, uh, why they inserted the issue or or raised it, you know, on their, on their own prerogative. But, um, you know, so it wasn't one that it was not an argument that the, um, uh, that the fish and game commission was invested in and they had no problem conceding to the Supreme court that, um, yeah, we we think that's a mistake as well, um, as they would because, you know, they've got um, an interest in being able to modify their own rulemakings going forward as they see fit based on the circumstances. And so they would not want their hands tied by a ruling like that as well. So the Supreme Court granted review of this procedural question and the substantive question of whether or not the petition in this uh, case should go beyond the screening stage to the you know the merits consideration at the Commission and interestingly when the when the case was argued um, in front of the Supreme Court back in December um, the Justices were clearly uh, you know, grappling with whether or not there was an adequate record to decide the substantive question. Um, whether you know there had been enough development of the legal arguments on the substantive point, the court of appeal, of course, having ruled for the commission on procedural grounds, never addressed any of the legal issues. Like, can the commission segment? A species into different populations and list one, but not the other. And so, ultimately, what the Supreme Court decided to do, they reversed the Court of Appeals' procedural argument and agreed that a petition could be filed challenging the an original listing decision as long as it was based on new information. And then remanded to the court of appeals to address these other issues. What are the proper legal rules for, you know, you know different populations of a species, and the, I guess, the factual question of whether the petition is adequate to move beyond the screening stage.
0: This is a fairly straightforward unanimous opinion, as you say, of reversing the court of appeal um, and saying that it would be okay for for petitioners to challenge. In the manner that was was done here, but uh, they they didn't go quite as far as saying that a petitioner could challenge an original listing decision, just full stop, right? They they said there there needed to be some subsequent scientific or other sort of information that that would need to be presented that would undermine the original uh, decision. Is that correct?
1: Yes, and the um, the the commission conceded in the Supreme Court that the petition, even though they can you know, continue to take the position that the, the petition is inadequate to pass the screening stage. They do agree that it does present new information, that it uh, assembles information that predated the decision but wasn't available to the commission, and adds information that did not exist at the time of the, the original listing decision. So they they conceded the the point that a petition based on new information can challenge the validity of a, of a prior listing decision that leaves the, you know, the $64,000 question in this case, does this petition do that? (laughs) And should it proceed past the screening stage? And it's one of these things, uh, you know, that a lot of us come across in appellate practice. You spend a lot of time figuring out, you know, whether you're not, you're going to deal with the merits of a case or is it just going to get consumed with procedure um, this petition was originally filed, I want to say in 2005 wow. and wow. now in 2017, we know that they can do that. <laughs> they can file a petition that makes the arguments that they make, but we don't know whether that petition is adequate yet. We don't yet know whether that petition is adequate to get past the initial screening stage. Sure.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, it seems characteristic of, uh, often environmental suits that they might, uh, might tend to, to go on for a little while.
1: That's that's okay. very true. Um, w- one of the one of the other um, one of the important things I think, though, that uh, the Supreme Court's decision recognizes is that um, the and this is you know, part of the argument we made um, in our amicus brief. What what the commission is doing in its decisions to list species or odd is. Looking at a snapshot of available information at the time they're making the decision, and you know, it's, I think generally accepted that you know, these are scientific decisions, and that the the body of knowledge on which scientific decisions are made is continually changing. One hopes it's continually improving, and you learn more about a species, particularly after you list it. And so the, the Supreme Court's analysis of whether the, the fish and game code allows this type of petition, you know, reflects the understanding that, you know, knowledge is never perfect. You, you act on the information you've got at the time of listing and that, you know, it makes sense to allow subsequent information to be brought to the commission to then ask the commission to revisit its listing decisions. And that, the you know, the structure of the the State Endangered Species Act in allowing that is very similar to the Federal Endangered Species Act, which clearly allows, um, you know, delisting based on mistake in the decision to to list. Um, And so ultimately what the Fish and Game Commission is going to have to do is address the question whether there's now enough more information about Coho Salmon South of San Francisco uh, to indicate that they should look more deeply into whether it's actually native to that area. Uh and will need to know whether the law allows them to do that segmentation and make a decision for that part of the population that would be different from you know the the listing decision for San Francisco Bay and North.
0: Uh, you, you bring up the comparable passages in this statute and its federal counterpart. And that's a point that you raised in, in your amicus brief that the, the statute, um, the state statute, should be read in the same manner as the, the Federal Endangered Species Act. But uh, I understand that the court didn't really reach that point. Is there state law that's on, on point suggesting that uh, that's the proper interpretation?
1: Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, and, you know, we, we cited three or four cases in our brief, uh, to that effect, um, the, the primary one is uh, it's called uh, Natural Resources Defense Council versus Fish and Game Commission, um, which <laughs> identifies the parties, but it tells you nothing about the case. I can't even remember what species that case was about. But uh, that was decided by the Court of Appeal in 1994, and that holds that the federal ESA should be used to interpret similar provisions in the California ESA. Um, There's a similar case uh, from 1996, San Bernardino Audubon Society versus City of Moreno Valley. And uh, those and other cases, you know, all use similar provisions in the federal ESA to interpret analogous portions of the California ESA. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, is a pretty clearly established um, uh, way of, of, of applying the California ESA. The Supreme Court did not address that question. They, they do a very simple analysis of the California ESA and based on its own text and structure include pretty easily that um, it, you can bring a petition that presents information that uh, on which you think the commission should change the listing status and that certainly can include new information that shows that a prior listing decision was wrong. Um, they probably would have come to the same conclusion by analogy to the federal ESA, but uh, did not did not need to do so.
0: Um, one other thing it seemed like the high court didn't explicitly do was um, mention or explain the difference between sort of the adjudicative or um, legislative or quasi-adjudicative or legislative processes and or into which bucket these sort of actions would fall into. But I take it by its ruling, it's – suggesting that contrary to the, the lower court, uh, the Court of Appeals, that um, these types of actions are more legislative in, in nature. And so, for instance, could be amended by the agency that makes them or challenged by petitioners such as those here.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, the Supreme Court decision um, briefly references the fact that this is one of the bases for the Court of Appeals decision, but then says nothing more about it <laughs> for for the balance of the opinion. And so the fact that they granted a review when they did vacated the uh, court – well, excuse me, depublished the Court of Appeals decision in this case. And so that can't be used as authority. It's important to note, though, that um, the Supreme Court recently uh, either completed a change to its rule – or proposed a change to its rules. I think it's completed this change. So the grants of review no longer automatically depublish the case being reviewed, the decision being reviewed. And so if this, um, if the grant of review had not depublished the Court of Appeals case, the, the ruling in this case, I think the Supreme Court would have had to address that, that aspect of it. Um, since it's granted of review to publish the case and the parties agreed straight up, no, that was just wrong. And the Supreme Court notes this was an issue that uh, the uh, Court of Appeal uh, originated. I think is basically a, a dead letter. Um, I don't think they needed to address it since they addressed the, the statutory question and their grant of review depublished um the court of appeals decision so that basically leaves it to the status quo ante which is that um, where this legislature has prescribed it you do um, access judicial review through section 1094.5 but that doesn't change the nature of the agency action being reviewed that way and that's i think a good outcome yeah, so
0: the high court is essentially saying, you know, there's a, a straighter line from the start of this case to, to an answer, so we don't necessarily need to, to delve into the, the questions that were su- yeah, are I think that's correct. Okay. Uh, the,
1: the odd thing is by uh, my – I think I said earlier, my, my sense of this is that that convoluted 1085 versus 1094.5 analysis in the Court of Appeals decision – it seems to be – might have been the main reason that the, the Supreme Court took the case. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was not even necessary to address any other it than its decision. Sure.
0: Okay. Now, as you say, the, the parties are back to status quo entity uh, and the, the commission will, will have to, to take a proper look at this, this petition for, um, say, a, taking a broader look for attorneys practicing in, in this area. What are the, the most important takeaways from the ruling as, as it stands now?
1: Well, so the um, the result of the Supreme Court's decision is a remand to the Court of Appeal to address the the substantive legal arguments, whether or not the Commission has authority to segment a species into different populations, some of which could be listed and others not, and whether or not um, the the term "native" in the in the California Endangered Species Act. Extends to, you know, planted, uh, you know, hatchery sustained, uh, you know, sport fish. But, um, so the Court of Appeal will now address those issues for the first time. And so recall that the, the Superior Court ruling that is at the Court of Appeal now again is one on the legal question the commission could decide to delist coho salmon in this particular portion of its range south of san francisco bay and that is a factual matter that this the 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 commission that the petition does meet the screening criteria and should proceed to the second stage so those two questions are, are now again in front of the court of appeal uh to be dealt with on the merits um one, one never knows. I mean, the the court of appeal. Well, we'll have to see whether you know it's it's done uh, addressing procedural issues or not. But I suspect that it is. So, well, it it's not clear how long then it will take to for the court of appeal to to rule on these questions, and you know whether the the Supreme Court would would take the case again following that uh, following that ruling is you know impossible to know. So unfortunately, other than the procedural question, can you bring petitions that challenge the original listing, the answer is yes, if the petition contains new information. That's right now all we know from this um, 12 years plus of uh, petition and related litigation
0: well, then, we'll have to, have to stay tuned then and see how the, the case continues to proceed. But for now, it sounds like a, an important clarification, at least, of the procedural um, aspects in question. That Mr. Tony Francois from the Pacific Legal Foundation, thanks for helping explain it to us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And with that... Our show for March 3rd, 2017 is complete. I'd like to tender very sincere gratitude once more to my guest, Mr. Tony Francois, the Pacific Legal Foundation. I'd like to thank you as well, our listener, for tuning in. Please don't forget that CLE credit is available for your listening. Let's find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I should thank members of my production staff here as well, including Ellen Ireland, Helen Enriquez, Nicholas Sonnenberg, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.